Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. Good morning and welcome to Beltline. We're so glad that you're here. It's good to see each and every one of you as we are smack dab in the beginning of a series of lessons on the life of Jesus Christ, the chronological look at the life of Christ. And today we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to open there. We're going to spend most of our time right here in Luke chapter 3 today as we look a little bit about John the Baptist and some other things going on here in the text. And I'm excited about a new year. Started uh, whenever something new begins, it's always kind of exciting, isn't it? And so today is certainly that day where we get to come together uh, again, new year, new uh, new destinations, hopefully for all of us, new, uh, new excitements for all of us as we get started. So let's just dive in. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to say up front in these first four verses, I may put my emphasis on the wrong syllable and say some of these names wrong. Uh, but I don't know exactly how they're supposed to be pronounced, so I'll do my best and you do your best, and if we disagree, that's okay. Uh, Verse 1, Luke chapter 3, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas, Annas and Caiaphas, and The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Okay, we got that out of the way. Now let's look at really what we want to see here in verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When I say the word flood from this stage, from this pulpit, my guess is your mind instantly goes back to Noah and the ark and how the animals came two by two into that ark. And you're, you're going to think about the things surrounding that flood that we read about in Genesis chapter 6. And rightly so, because a worldwide flood is certainly memorable. And although majorly different in scale... Flooding is something that happens all around us, isn't it? Especially about six hours south of us on the coast during hurricane season. And floods are always devastating. And on a consistent, regular basis, when a hurricane is coming to one of those areas, you're going to have some warnings that go out, right? First, the the meteorologists are going to step up and they're going to say, listen, this is going to be a really bad storm. We are saying that you need to take some precautions. You need uh, to probably get away to get out of the house because we don't want there to be any loss of life because of this storm. 
And when the meteorologists are done, enter the politicians, right? The governors, the mayors, they step up and say, hey, listen, we think this is going to be a really bad storm, and we think you need to head north as quickly as possible. Get out of harm's way. And when they're finished, the police force, the sheriffs, the deputies, they kind of even sometimes will go door to door and they will say, listen, there's no guarantee that we're going to be able to get back to you if this storm is as bad as they're claiming to be. So you need to get out. You could get trapped. You need to get away. Well, that, that's the kind of work John the Baptist is doing, this warning that I just talked about. And we don't usually think of preaching uh, going around making that kind of announcement. And I don't know what it was. Maybe it was his strange attire. Maybe it was his weird diet. Maybe it was how he lived his life. But people, for some reason, believed John. And they came to him for a different kind of flooding. They came to him for baptism. And the question that we want to try to tackle today is, what is the emergency that John is warning them about and how would being plunged into the Jordan River help people avoid that danger? Now, there's a lot of detail given to us here in Luke chapter 3. But don't let the who's in charge where lead you away from the greater point that is being made for us here in Luke chapter 3. Because behind all the details, behind all the names, behind all the places that we read about in those first three or four verses is a story of oppression. It's a story of misery, and it's building and building and building to an explosion point. That's what's going on as Jesus enters the scene, as John the Baptist begins to prepare the way for Jesus. We know that Rome at this point had ruled this area for about a hundred years, but it was only since A.D. 6 that there had been a Roman governor resident in the area. The Roman governor lived in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, but he also kept a base in Jerusalem. That's where Pontius Pilate would stay. Augustus Caesar, the first Roman emperor, had died in A.D. 14, and his place had been taken by the ruthless Tiberius, who we read about in verse 1. And Tiberius, at this moment in history, is already being worshipped as a god by his people uh, in the eastern parts of the empire. We talked about Herod last time we were here, but what we notice here is that Herod the Great's two sons, Antipas and Philip, are now ruling somewhat shakily under Roman permission. They're ruling in the north side of the country, but Rome has taken direct control of the south side, including the city of Jerusalem. Now, most Jews did not regard Herod's sons as real rulers. As we talked about last week, they were kind of a self-made royal house. And they ruled, like Rome, with fear and oppression. And the high priests that they selected to lead were not much better. And popular movements of resistance had come and stayed and then come and gone. And some of those popular movements of resistance had been put down brutally by these men. Here's the thing. Everyone knew that the way things were couldn't remain the way they were. Everybody knew something had to happen. Something had to change. But the question is, what? You see, devout Jews had longed for a new word from God. Uh, it's been 400 years since a prophet had come, right? And they were longing for a new word for God. Some Jews believed that prophecy had died out. 
But they held on to hope that one day that prophecy might be revived. And many expected a movement would begin through which their God would renew the covenant. They would bring Israel out of slavery and into freedom. The old prophets had spoken of a time of renewal through which God himself would come back to them. Now, they had only a small idea of what that was all supposed to look like. But when this fiery young prophet, John, shows up in the Judean wilderness, going around towns and villages and saying, the time has come, the time has come, the time has come, they were ready to listen. They were ready to listen. And baptism, which John offers, is a powerful sign of this renewal. And when the children of Israel had come out of slavery, a story that they knew well, uh, because they continued to celebrate the Passovers and the festivals. We remember they were brought through the Red Sea. They were brought through the Sinai wilderness. And they were brought through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. The problem is, now they're slaves again in their own land. And so they wanted something new. Two words. And I want you to, to, to hang on to these, because we'll talk a lot about this over the next few weeks. They wanted a new exodus. They wanted a new exodus. Now, this time, though, they didn't want to be removed from their lands. What they wanted was freedom from the oppressors. They wanted to be freed. They wanted to have uh, their slavery removed to Rome. Now, since the old prophets declared that slavery was the result of Israel's sin, worshiping all of these other idols rather than the one true God, this new exodus, if it was going to happen, is going to have to deal with their sins. The way to escape slavery, the prophets said, was to return to God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is to repent. One of the last prophets, Malachi, prophesied this in Malachi 3 and verse 7. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So that's John's agenda, to get the people to return to God so that they will be ready for the Messiah. His is a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John is doing exactly what the prophet Isaiah had said, preparing the way for the Lord himself to return. The time was at hand. The rescue was at hand. But there was one problem. The people were a wreck. The people were in such bad shape. And think about this too. Baptism was something Gentiles had to undergo if they wanted to convert to Judaism. And so the very fact that John is calling Israel itself to baptism speaks for itself. He's saying, we got to completely start over. we got to completely renew what we have broken. And John was not going to be satisfied with some outward ritual. No, everyone in the crowd needed to face their own moral status. So John is that messenger that Malachi 3 verse 1 talks about. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. But here's the key in this passage in Malachi chapter 3. It, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, he'll prepare the way before you. Now listen to this. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. God himself was coming back. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come back. He wasn't coming to tell them that because they were Abraham's kids, they don't need to worry about everything. Everything's going to be all right. No, 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 no. The rescue God brings and the salvation that he offers is precisely because he is a holy and faithful God, keeping his covenant with his people. But if that is so, we need to recognize he's also a God bound to bring judgment as well as salvation. Judgment as well as mercy. Because he, as we talked about last week, isn't a tame God. 
And I want you to look back to Luke 3 and look at verse 9. And I want you to look at the image that's laid out for us here. And Jesus will talk about this later. But he says here in Luke 3 verse 9, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the fruit must show that the repentance is genuine, right? And that warning echoes down throughout the years, even to us today. And we must take to heart exactly that. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. And we cannot presume that simply because we have shared in the great Christian mystery, the new exodus coming through the waters of baptism, that that means that God is absolutely and automatically happy with us if we show, even if we show no signs of repentance. We cannot believe today, well, at least I was baptized and think that's going to save us if we're showing nothing after that. That's what they were relying on, their pedigree. And John says, you're out of your mind if you think God is going to be pleased with that. And so the lesson for us, the critical lesson that we need to get, and I can think of no better time to give it than at the start of a new year, is simply this. Repentance is critical and repentance is necessary. This is the message of John. This is the message that Jesus himself will carry on as he moves into his ministry here in the next couple lessons. This is the consistent call of Scripture on our life. Repentance is critical. Repentance is necessary. Sandra Bullock won the 2010 Best Actress Academy Award for her portrayal of Leanne Tui in The Blind Side. Many of you have seen the movie, and it's a great film that chronicles a Christian family who takes in a homeless young man and gives him the chance to reach his God-given potential. Michael Orr not only dodged the hopelessness of his dysfunctional family and inner-city upbringing, but he became the first-round NFL draft pick of the Baltimore Ravens in 2009. Now, at a recent fundraiser, Sean Tui noted that the transformation for his family and Michael all started with two words. When they spotted Michael walking along the road on a cold November morning, the movie says it's the evening, but it actually happened in the morning. He was wearing nothing but a t-shirt and shorts. And Leanne Tui uttered two words that changed their world. She simply told her husband, turn around. Turn around. And they turned the car around. They put Michael in their warm vehicle. And ultimately, they adopted him into their family. And I want you to know this morning, those same two words can change anyone's life. Turn around because when we turn around we change directions and we can begin an exciting new journey that God has laid in front of us and so whatever your situation is I don't really care what it is but whatever it is a great wonderful change could just be two words away for you turn around repentance is critical repentance is necessary and it is this repentance again that jesus will pick up and he will pick up this same message and he will call people to repent to turn around now of course the christian life is more than simply repentance but it is certainly not less than that and all spiritual advances listen to me all spiritual advances begin with a turning away from what is hindering our obedience. Luke chapter 3, verse 10. The crowd asked him, what shall we do? 
And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, or by, and be content with your wages. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, a strap whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. John the Baptist doesn't waste any time going into the details of the things people fight about, right? You see, if, if these people were coming to him for baptism, then John understood they were committing themselves to become God's Israel. If they were coming to him for baptism, John understood that they are now supposed to take up the mantle of being light to the world to being a people in whom God's justice could be seen by all. There was no time and no need for lengthy discussions about this, that, and the other. What they needed was rules of thumb. Rules of thumb, so to speak. Here they are. You have two cloaks, give one away. Too much food, same applies. And nobody could miss the point. Like the great Old Testament prophets, John could see the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, and a start had to be made to get things back on track. Now listen, I don't think God, uh, that John is advocating or recommending some kind of communal living. That's not what he's talking about. What he is talking about is basic benevolence. Food and clothes are necessities. And how can we be lovers of God if we sit idly by as our fellow man lacks the basic needs of life? And as we walk through these lessons, especially as we start to look at Jesus, you're going to notice how Jesus uses benevolence as a door to open up spiritual realities. He will meet physical needs first, and he will follow those up with spiritual listen, lessons. And we've got some huge things coming in 2021 that I can't wait to tell you about. Let me just whet your appetite with that right there. We want to be the same thing that Jesus was. We want to do what Jesus did. We've got some things coming, and I'll leave that right there. Now, as we look later in, in Luke chapter 3, nobody likes paying taxes even at the best of times. And some of the taxes imposed on the people at this time were ridiculous, with local rulers lining their pockets and giving tax collectors the right to do the same. But notice, John doesn't say stop working for these hated rulers. John doesn't recommend unemployment. No, he says you need to earn your living and no more. Stop getting rich at the expense of your own people. The soldiers that he mentions here in these verses are Herod's soldiers. They're not Roman soldiers. They're Jews. They are unlikely Romans. They are not told to abandon their careers. They are told to stop abusing their position. No thuggery. Don't use brute force to rob people. He says, be content with your wages. Now, this doesn't mean they can never ask for a raise. Instead, he's saying to the soldiers, you can't complain about your pay as an excuse to rob and pillage people. 
well, Herod doesn't pay me enough, so I have no choice but to rob you. That won't fly in the kingdom. And so John is laying this out. By the way, it still doesn't fly today. Simple, clear commands. But if they were obeyed, they would demonstrate that the people meant business. And none of the things that John mentions here accidentally occurs, accidentally happens, right? They only occur when people have genuinely repented of small-scale injustices which turn a society sour. And so here's the second lesson for us today. Not only is repentance necessary and critical, but John is showing us that repentance includes bearing fruit. It's not enough just to repent. Repentance includes bearing fruit. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, it's changing our actions. To use the previous illustration, it's not turning around and then standing there. No, it's turning around and walking in a different direction. It's bearing fruit worthy of repentance. John will make this, uh, Jesus will make this abundantly clear in the book of John later in his ministry, chapter 15, verse 8, when he says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. Did you hear what he said? Listen, I'm all about uh, repentance and baptism and and I'm all about that. We need to do that. That's what happens after that that proves whether you're really a Christian. Baptism, repentance, confession is the beginning of your walk. It's not the end. So how are you doing with that? The call of our lives is to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Not to trust that because I have faithfully attended a church of Christ all my life, that I am somehow now assured eternal life. No, we don't trust our pedigree. We don't trust our family tree. That's what these Jews were doing, and that got them nowhere, and it'll get you nowhere. Jesus will say later, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom. You know who's going to get in? Those that actually do something. Those that actually do the will of the Father. Those that actually bear fruit worthy of that repentance. You see, John the Baptist is not just a moral reformer. He's not just announcing the time has arrived for a new exodus. He is a herald of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's calling you and he's calling me to follow that king. As we saw a few weeks ago, there was already a king of the Jews when Jesus was born. Herod the Great, and now Herod's son, Herod Antipas, was the king of the Jews. And he was working on rebuilding the temple, the, the, the same project his father began. Now, I told you last time that there was a reason why Herod the Great started this, this project. Because rebuilding the temple is a way of claiming royal status. And so they're not just rebuilding the temple to say, aren't we great people, we rebuilt the, the temple. No, they're rebuilding the temple because they are making a claim to royalty, to God's, to being God's royalty. That's what's going on here. And so John comes and he has other ideas. He says the Messiah, the true king of the Jews, is coming. And his coming is going to bring devastating judgment. The idea of the Messiah as a judge as well as a savior is so important for us to grasp. Now, we love the salvation side of Jesus, but have we neglected and avoided the judgment side? There's got to be balance, right? The Messiah would bring God's justice to the world, yes. 
Not justice would involve naming and dealing with evil. John, at the end of that section we just read, talks about separating the wheat from the chaff and, and fire that's going to be burnt up once the chaff has been separated. It's not exactly the picture of Jesus that we Western Christians want, but we have to take it seriously. Judgment is real, so please don't deceive yourself. Now, listen to how this finishes in Luke chapter 3, verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch had been reproved by John from Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil that Herod had done. Adding this to them all, he locked up John in prison. Let me tell you what's going on here. Herod Antipas had an affair with Herodias. Now, Herodias is the wife of Antipas's brother, Philip. And after she has an affair with her husband's brother, she divorces Philip, which was unheard of that day, and marries Antipas. And so John, in no uncertain terms, calls this sin, and he condemns the actions of the king of the Jews. You see, part of John's point in doing that was to show the people that if Herod had any pretensions of being the true king of the Jews, his behavior shows without a shadow of a doubt that's not true. Because the Lord's anointed would never do something like that. And John speaks out fearlessly against Herod, and he takes the consequences because of it. His proclaiming of the true king, the king of all kings, lands him in jail, and ultimately, as we will see in the next few weeks, cost him his life. And so here's the reality, and this is the third lesson for us today. Allegiance to the king. Allegiance to King Jesus has consequences. If you're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be consequences for that. I mean, if you're really going to follow Jesus, there's going to be consequences. I'm not talking about saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then going living like the rest of the world, like most of Christianity does. I'm saying if you really are going to follow Jesus the way you are called to by God in scriptures, it's going to have some consequences for your life. Think about this. John did exactly what God wanted him to do. He prepared the way for the king. He was faithful to his responsibilities, and he ended up in jail and died for his faithfulness. God doesn't promise us that it will be easy when we follow him or that it will always end the way that we think it should. In fact, he says the opposite. He promises that if we pledge our allegiance to him, we're going to suffer. After all, if they did what they did to Jesus, what do you think they're going to do to his followers? But count it all joy when that happens, that you get to share the same sufferings that Jesus went through. Count it all joy that you get to suffer for the sake of the king. I want to ask you this very important question this morning. Are you more concerned with your standing in the world or your standing before God? Are you more concerned with your reputation at school or your reputation with God? Are you more concerned with your reputation at work or your standing with God? What are your actions declaring? And if the answer, as you weigh those in your mind this morning, as you weigh those questions in your mind, if the answer is not what you want it to be, turn around. Turn around. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. And when the persecution comes, and it will, count it all joy that you've been found worthy to suffer for your king. Turn 
around. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what 2020 did to you. I don't know where you find yourself if we're three days into a new year. But I do know that God still offers you the opportunity to turn around and come back to Him. And what a better time than right now. Turn around and say, God, I'm going to move in your direction. I'm done with small dreams and weak living. I'm going to walk the path of time. I choose today to turn around and to bear fruit toward you. We want to help you with that. We don't claim to do it perfectly, but we want to help each other walk the path that God's laid in front of us. You need that help today. Let us do that. Let us pray for you. If you need to begin your walk, maybe you've never started down this road, then you need to do exactly what John did or what John was calling people to do. You need to be plunged into that flood, baptized for the remission of your sins so that you can begin to walk the path that God has. We can help you at all. We want to we want to be here for you. Just need prayer, anything we can do. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.